podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another Spotify Green Room Wagon Wheel podcast. I'm Jared Kimber. It's a slightly different time today, so we might get different people, we might get different questions, we might get different things. Because obviously I'm sleeping throughout the entire day because I'm in the UK trying to cover the ashes. So we're squeezing them in wherever we can. But thanks to everyone for joining in. As usual, line up your questions when you feel like you have questions. If you can only listen to a little bit of this podcast on Spotify Greenroom, remember that it is also available uh, eventually on the YouTube channel, but it'll also be on the Red Inca podcast on Saturday. Big shout out to our sponsors. I've got the Bodyline t-shirts on. I've got a big WG Grace. I don't know if people know this, but I actually used to live like about 180 metres from his grave where he was uh, buried in South London. And my local pub used to be called The Graces, although... It had jam donuts and black Elvis nights. So it's not exactly as WG Grace left it. I think that's probably fair to say. But also a huge shout out to manscaped.com. If you want to buy the ultimate gift for the man in your life this year, try manscaped.com. The lawnmower 4.0 will make his testicles feel very smooth. And don't you want every man in your life to have incredibly smooth testicles? I know I do. <laughs> You can use the code uh, Red Inca, that's all one word, Red Inca, uh, when you're buying it and you get 20% discount of free worldwide shipping. So go buy it for you, buy it for men, buy it for everyone. Uh, but big thanks to Manscaped. We've also got the Patreons, of course. We've got an absolute bunch of Patreon questions this week. If you want to get your questions in first on this podcast, the best way to do it really is just to go to Patreon and uh, become a member. I can't remember what tier it is. It's one of the tiers. There's a few tiers. There's, a, there's always tiers. And you can then, uh, every week I put out a message and you can ask a question. Of course, you can always come on live and try luck, but you know it doesn't always work <laughs> as well, especially if we get busier on some of these. Our first question this week is from Coppernath, who says, about New Zealand. How did the Kiwis get four or so high-quality wicketkeeper batters in their test team in the last decade? It's hard for others to get one, let alone two. Okay, so this one is, in some ways, it's fairly simple. What New Zealand have actually managed to do is not get four high-quality keeper batters. What they've actually managed to do is just have more quality batters. If you have a lot of batters, you are going to have a lot more wicketkeepers. Because essentially what happens now is in the old days at under 13, under 15, under 17 level, school level, all these sorts of things, you would pick your fast bowlers, your spinners, your batters, you know, your all-rounders and your wicketkeeper. Now you pick all the other things and from that list, you essentially make one of them wicketkeeper, which means that there are so many kids out there who are not pure wicketkeepers, but they're learning it and then that happens at the professional level. So it's funny that you talk, uh, Gopinath, about... Um, New Zealand. Uh, in this England side, let's see if I've got them all. You could, uh, We could have a test this year, although with Rory Burns' pulled the other day, perhaps not, but we could have a test in this Ashes where England have Rory Burns, um, Ollie Pope, Johnny Bairstow, and Joss Butler. They would have four wicketkeepers in their 11. And we've seen, obviously, many teams like, well, Sri Lanka's the, the king of this, aren't they? So I think in a lot of cricket cultures around the world, they're not really backing wicket-keeping skills anymore. What they're really doing is just getting batters. So what the real question you're asking there is that they just have a lot of people who can bat, um, and then some of them have been, you know, sticky tape uh, gloves on them. Doesn't mean that some of them haven't become really good keepers as well. Uh, you know, that that can happen. Um, Matt Pryor is probably a very good case of, of someone like that. Uh, um, 
becoming good, and we've seen that you know again and again. But realistically, um, it's it's about the batting. It's really interesting uh, talking to how. Y- Wicket keepers become wicket keepers these days, and it's almost always the first time they're at a representative or a decent level of cricket. Literally, the question is, does anyone want to keep? We didn't pick a keeper, and then someone puts their hand up, um, and then the next, next, you know, a couple of the next tournament, they don't do it, and someone else does it. Sometimes it's it's not like the old days where you pick the best wicket keeper and hope they could bat. Ripu says, is it a genuine concern for Australian cricket that how few fast bowls are debuted, debuted in? the last few years. Now with Pattinson retiring, settle up there in age, their fast bowling reserves look grim. Um, uh, does this play a part in their apprehension to implement rest and rotate? Uh, well, uh, Nathan Coulton, I'll probably in another era becomes a very good test bowler, but I think he's probably not quite good enough to split his time between T20 and test cricket. And uh, because he's sort of gone with T20, which makes sense, he's made a lot of money off it. Uh, he's probably not the level of, of test bowler that they want. Billy Stanlake is probably a disappointment. He is obviously a test level bowler, uh, you know, on on, gen, on on skills. They, there ain't many people like him ever in the history of cricket, but he just hasn't come along the way that they would have wanted. Uh, they dissuaded a lot of very good fast medium bowlers or even medium fast, or even medium in Trent Copeland's case. Uh, so, you know, Trent Copeland, Chad Sayers, um, Chris Tremaine, uh, I'm probably missing uh, Mike, uh, Nisa. Uh, so they didn't want any of those. They've had a lot of highly skilled guys that they could have brought in, but they wanted fast, medium, or even fast bowlers as much as possible. Jai Richardson's probably had uh, slightly more injuries than they would have um, been happy with. Um, so, uh, I mean, the reason that, that, that they don't rest and rotate is because I think outside that four that you mentioned, if we include Pattinson in it, everyone else is probably a bit of a drop-off anyway, and they don't want the drop-off, right? Even the fact that they went back to Siddle is really interesting um, rather than rather than going with, you know, Copeland or um, Sayers or, you know, well, Tr- I think Tremaine was probably out of form, but then or Michael Nisa. Um, sort of tells you uh, how they feel about some of those other guys. If they're going to go with that sort of medium-fast, fast-medium type of skillful bowler, they wanted one that had played for them before. So, again, they're limiting um, who they want. Um, they've flirted with Jackson Bird um, at times, and I think he's been okay at times, but there are certain test pitches where he doesn't look like he's ever going to take a wicket. But, yeah, I hope that one answers that. Rajashi says... Since you always answer my question here and never on the YouTube video, well, that's because this is where I do question and answer, Rajash. <laughs> he goes, one, is there any psychological, biological limit to the fastest bowling speed humanly possible? No, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, psychological, I, I don't know how, how that would even work. Uh, biological, I'm assuming there is, but I don't think anyone's done a, a test on it. Uh, we probably thought 100 miles an hour was that was the limit. Um We've already had people break that. Um, so, no, I wouldn't say that, that that is a limit. I think that just happened to be a round number that people thought we'd never bowl at. Um, we've seen in baseball, you know, baseball pitches getting quicker um, as, as a group, not just at the high end. In cricket, we haven't seen as much on the high end, but certainly as a group, we've seen bowlers getting quicker and quicker. Uh, we're seeing the women get quicker as well. We're learning more. Um, I, I assume it will just keep going in small implements. It might eventually be like a bit of a plateau, Um uh, and maybe there is a peak, but I'm not sure what that would be. Um, Jimmett says, not a question, just praise. Uh, congratulations on being part of history by calling it AJS Patel's damn wicket. That, that was very, very, uh, that was fun. I didn't expect to be calling that. Um, uh, it's one of those things I'm not, I try and, 
I try and live in the moment so that I'm watching it with the viewer or the listener um, when I'm commentating because otherwise I get too far ahead and there's too many thoughts in my head and it comes a bit too structured. So I don't think I really realized that I was about to call Ajaz Patel's 10th wicket until his ninth wicket had gone. Um, so it was an incredible moment and a lot of fun to be able to do uh, that, certainly. Um, Ian says, as above, you commented on a great piece of history and did it brilliantly. Well, I mean, at least one of those things is true. Got me thinking, though, if you could go back in, uh, to any other match and call an iconic moment, what would it be? Uh, that, I mean, that's really interesting. I think for me it's probably more... Maybe some of the, I'd love to have called, you know, Ireland beating Pakistan. Um, I think that is maybe one of the most seminal moments in, in cricket history. Uh, you know, in the 2007 World Cup, in some ways it sort of changed the way that we thought about the associates in a way that even Bangladesh and Kenya having some success in World Cups previous had it. Ireland was such an outlier um, and wasn't considered part of the cricket conversation. Um, or actually, one of the best, um, if I could do one over, it would be the Dutch beating the England at Lords in the short broad over, which is still one of the most breathtakingly weird um, moments I've ever witnessed. I was there as a fan, actually. Absolutely bizarre. Um, uh, Ray says, continue with the bowling theme, ambidextrous bowlers. Are there any? And if not, um, how come? Uh, there aren't many. Uh, there are a few. There's one in Sri Lanka. Is there one in Australia? Maybe one in South Africa. There's a few hovering around the first class level. Um, the reason we don't have more, it's the same reason they don't have more in baseball. It's like, what are the odds that you're good enough to be a professional pitcher in one uh, with one arm, let alone with two? Like, it's very, very unlikely. There aren't, as far as I'm aware, there aren't many tennis players who serve right-handed and then go, do you know what, I'll try left-handed as well today. Um, you know, the skills that you need to be able to do it at the top level. The reason that cricket might have an advantage is that if you are ambidextrous, and I mean genuinely ambidextrous, uh, we can both spin. So at least you don't have to pitch at 85 miles an hour a ball left arm um, quick at that at that rate. Um, and we've had players before, guys like Alan Border, um, Colin Miller, someone else I'm missing as well, maybe a South African, who probably could have done it. I mean, Jofra Archer can bowl left arm finger spin. And I've seen him bowl left arm wrist spin. Whether it's test quality or uh, ODI quality, I don't know. But there's a chance one day he might rip out one of those for fun. Um, so there are players with the ambidextrous skill, but there's a difference between having ambidextrous skill and preparing it. So there's a, a few baseballers that have done it, and they've really worked quite hard um, at uh, – what's the best way of putting it? They've worked quite hard um, – on working on both arms, and even they are generally not effective at the professional level. They quite often have success in minor baseball, and even um, some of them who play college ball have success, but it's very, very hard. The one advantage, though, is, as I said, the spinners, but still the, the dexterity that you need, the, the quality that you need to be an international level or a, a franchise level T20 bowler in both hands is, you know, chances are you're only going to be able to do one or the other. Uh, the Sri Lankan guy whose name I've forgotten, that's no, not going to come back to me. Um, he, uh, he bowls left arm finger spin when he's bowling to right-handers and he bowls off spin, uh, when he's bowling to left-handers. Uh, I remember Gareth Batty was commentating with me, uh, at TalkSport when we were out in Sri Lanka when he was playing and he said, you could see the marked difference between the two skills. So in one skill, he's like a full-timer and the other skill he's like a part-timer. I think that's more often than not going to be the case. So that's probably why we haven't seen more of them, Ray, but thanks for the question. 
Sandeep says, isn't it ludicrous that Chaos Barrett's spectacular show behind the stumps when he claimed three dismissals will not be part of his official test record because he was a substitute? It was an official test. The dismissals were legitimate and everything else will be an uh, official record. Um, and when you, say, when you say official record, like, what do you mean? Who's keeping official stats? Is there an official record of stats? There are stats. Some people might include those and most people won't. The um, Association of Cricket Scorers, oh my God, I should know that one. Cricket statisticians, they won't claim that those are stats, but you can. The ICC don't actually keep official stats as far as I'm aware. Could be wrong. Um, I've certainly never seen a database that says official stats. Um, so if you want to claim them, you, you're allowed to. Uh, other people's won't. I, I, I just don't care that much if I'm being honest and deep, but that's fair enough. Ramna says, is it a valid assessment to say that select, there is a selection bias towards cricketers from New South Wales when picking players for the Australian team? I remember Brad Hodge alleging that he wasn't given enough chances as he came from Victoria, and a similar view was expressed by David Hooks. Is this a perception of bias backed by data, or is this a stereotype? I have to have a look, but my memory is that New South Wales have won close to a third of Sheffield Shields. I mean, there's a reason why their players get picked more often. I think what happens, though, in any selection area is once you consistently pick from one area, you trust those players more. I don't think it's as much of a problem for Victoria. I think it's a massive problem probably historically for Queensland, uh, maybe less so for Queensland now, but certainly historically for Queensland. Still a big problem in Tasmania, um, South Australia, and Western Australia. Again, less so now, but historically, you know, they were so far away from everyone else that people didn't see it. Uh, we didn't have uh, access to video and everything there. It also probably comes back to an amateur thing. You know, if, you, if you're running an amateur selection committee, you're probably going to go back to the well over and over again. You would hope that in professional times they'll cast the net a little bit wider. Um, uh, there's always been a thought that Victoria, um, uh, because you mentioned Brad Hodge, that Victoria tries to have the best Sheffield Shield side it can and New South Wales tries to prepare test players, um, especially over the last 20 years. And I think that, that is something that is probably slightly based in truth. Uh, quite often, the Victoria probably has a stronger team or is trying to put a stronger team out, even if New South Wales actually has, still has better cricketers. And New South Wales like, oh, well, we won't pick this guy because he won't average 50 in test cricket. Um, so we'll move on. I think New South Wales is even slightly changing that. But I think there's a lot of different reasons. But also... You know, um, Sydney is where, uh, or New South Wales in general, but Sydney in general is where so many cricketers have come from. There's actually more cricketers in Victoria, but they haven't ever produced the same level of quality for whatever reason that is. Maybe, you know, the club club scene doesn't quite work as well or, you know, whatever that is. It could be something as simple as Victoria has this other form of cricket called as district cricket, and then there's another form called sub-district. It could just be that maybe some the, the player pool is a little bit more um, spread out compared to, you know, grade cricket in Sydney, which is, you know, up there with, you know, Mumbai and, you know, the, the Northern Leagues in the UK and, um, uh, the, the, you know, some of the leagues in Chennai as just the strongest in the world, Barbados. Um, so it could just be the, those sorts of things. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I think at times there's been that bias. There's probably been that bias in the, in the other direction as well because quite often the selectors were represent well the selectors were literally representatives of the states which is a terrible way of doing it because unless you have six people on the selection committee to begin with christopher hart says on comms on day one i heard mike hussey talk about data and that's a great thing for bowlers but as a batter he preferred not to look at it in too much detail i'm imagining from a cricket point of view regardless that's not really sensible but i can understand how m mentally it may be easier for him 
as an analyst, do you find this to be common? Oh, look, I, I think, uh, don't forget, Mike Hussey came from an era where he didn't have that much. Almost all the best data that we have in cricket has been specifically helping bowlers so far. I think we don't have as much information for batters going forward. Um, I know England tried quite a lot with the batters uh, around the 13-14 period, um, and there was some good information given, and there's certainly stuff that you can give bowl- uh, batters, but at the moment we haven't worked out enough. Um, but, yeah, I just think that he's an older player and probably, you know, um, he was quite successful the way he was anyway. Um, I, I wouldn't read too much into into that. I think Mike Hussey's quite... Um, I know he uses or used to use it at Sydney Thunder, so he's into data. But yeah, before you go out to bat, I'm not sure it's particularly a great um, uh, thing. Uh, just on this, uh, Kyle Carlson sent a message through on the chat saying, "I think only one ambidextrous pitcher has made it to the MLB, and he had a mediocre short career." Yeah, I think there's been a couple, Kyle. Um, there's certainly been a few drafted, but yeah, very few have made it to the major leagues, and they haven't been that effective for the reasons I said before. Rubard says, having just seen Ben Stokes somersault on the boundary and noticing what seems to be players looking to find more elegant, safer ways to fall, are players essentially given some kind of acrobatic training in fielding? Uh, when did the focus on that skill start to develop? It was probably when Australia and South Africa really took diving to another level in the 90s. There's still, I would think that probably what judo, and as you say, maybe some sort of acrobatic should, um, should probably come into it. There's still a lot of players who do not know how to dive. Um, and don't know how to dive in different positions. So uh, I think that's probably fair that we need to um, that we need to probably move forward a little bit from that. Um, but it's yeah, we're maybe in the you know second generation of players, all, all players diving, well, most players diving, um, and so uh, perhaps that's why um, that could be the reason. I'm not sure. Big thanks to all the people on Patreon. Remember, if you want to get a question in early, uh, you can always um, become a Patreon supporter and then do it that way. Let's get into the live questions. Rahul. Hey, Jared. I wanted to ask uh, something about yesterday's um, Ben Stokes no-ball saga. Every ball was a no-ball before he balled the no-ball that got David Warner out. So essentially, they said that the technology that checks the no-ball wasn't working. That's what I read somewhere. So Mm -hmm. in that case, shouldn't they have just put the onus to the on-field buyer to call it? Because what I'm wondering is that if they would have called a no-ball before that, Ben Stokes would have corrected his, you know, his his, his his foot that was landing, and subsequently the next ball would have been an actual like they would have taken the wicket of David Warner. So I wanted to know what are your thoughts in that scenario? Like uh, essentially, they what they did is they went back to the period where no ball calls didn't work, and the reason that I didn't call them on the field is because essentially of the Adam Voges incident, and the Adam Voges incident is where he was bowled, the umpire called a no ball. And then it turned out that the ball was not a no ball. That's why they don't call them on the field anymore because that is a – there's not much they can do here. Bowler has legally bowled a delivery, but because there was a no ball call made on the field, there's a chance, although very slim, that Adam Voges heard that and then that's why he played the shot that he did. So in order to, to handle that – so, I mean, what you saw yesterday was basically what me and Adam Collins have been moaning about for years until they brought in this new system, which was that there were hundreds and hundreds of no balls every day uncalled in test cricket. I think the record that I saw was um, – oh, God, what's his name? The um, left-arm wrist spinner from Sri Lanka bowled 21 no balls in a 24-ball um, period, and they weren't called. Um 
it got absolutely ridiculous how bad it was. Uh, and what you saw yesterday was going back towards that thing. But the reason they don't want to call them on the field is because they don't want to accidentally call a no ball that is not a no ball because that actually causes them even more problems. But everything you said is right. Everything you said I've written about, and there's a podcast of me and Adam Collins before they made the official change to call the no balls off the field about how ridiculous it was. Essentially, we created a sport where we weren't even officiating one of our major laws. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, but some of that comes to do with the fact that cricket had evolved as well. It's very hard now for an international umpire to look down and look up when all the bowlers are 85 miles an hour plus quicker. Um, and then there's the fact that, you know, a decision where you make a mistake by a millimetre or two looks much worse in super slow motion. Uh, but, yeah, the real mistake yesterday wasn't going back to that system. The real mistake yesterday was not telling anyone that that was happening. Like, why did they Why did they try and hide it? Did they think they'd get away with it? Like, you've made a mistake. That's fine. The technology doesn't work. We all understand. COVID, let's move on. Um, and that wasn't the case. I had, I had one quick follow-up on that. So essentially, yep. do you know what technology is this that is actually seeing, that is measuring the foot on this? I, I honestly thought that why can't just Third Empire always have a screen in front of him that also checks the no ball? It is a screen, but it's got to be fast action. Um, and it's a special camera. So it has, to, it has to be instantaneous because if it's not instantaneous, by the time it happens, it takes too long. So it's a technology that has to happen instantly, uh, um, especially if you think about with spinners. So that was the big problem. That's always been the big problem with, with, with that system is if it doesn't happen straight away, uh, you don't get to see it. So that's why, uh, that, and that's where the technology went down. It's not that they can't have cameras on the thing, but they didn't have the full system that they needed. I don't know specifically what went wrong. I don't know if Adam Collins or Jeff Lemon wrote about it, but um, they were tweeting about it yesterday. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jared. No worries. Cheers. Jimmy Boy is coming through. Hi, Jared. How you doing? What's your question? So, I wanted to ask about the World Test Championships. That, uh, why are we not having a best of three final? Because there's no time in cricket and we can't. I mean, we just played We just play England, England, India, World Cup, IPL, New Zealand, India in the space of 10 minutes. That's why we're not playing a best of three World Test Championship. And uh, what are the changes do you want to see in the World Test Championships in the future? I want it to be a real competition and not just bilateral series that we call the World Test Championship. That, I mean, that's the most important one. I uh, want it to be sold as a league rather than to be sold as bilateral series uh, that will help everyone out. Um, yeah, I mean, those are, those are the basic ones. It's just the bilateral series that we call a World Test Championship at the moment. It's not actually a World Test Championship. We'd be better off having a two-tier system with two divisions like we have in Premier League. Well, we do have two divisions. We have nine teams in Division One and three teams in Division Two, which kind of tells you how ridiculous it is. But we do have two two tiers. Uh they flow to the idea. It looks the better system for test cricket, especially. Because there's yeah. no point, I mean, to be honest, there's no point having a, like we saw the recent Pakistan and Bangladesh series, Bangladesh were no match in their home conditions for Pakistan. I mean, uh, pretty well said, it is Yeah, but I mean, uh, I think two reason yeah. system is a better system than the current World Test Championship. Of course it's a better system. Everything's a better system than what we have, Jimmy. Look, we, um, they they floated the idea of having 17 Division One, 17 Division Two. Uh, the teams didn't want it because Sri Lanka, West Indies, Bangladesh were terrified of going into Division Two. Well, if you're terrified of going into Division Two, why don't you actually make sure that your teams are better? Why don't you invest in improving your cricket culture? Um, and that's not what they're trying to do. And so instead, we've got this terrible system that doesn't really work. No one, you don't deserve to play Division One top level Test cricket because you were given membership in 1878 or 
1880 or 1929 or whatever year you got it. That's nonsense. It is a stupid system, right? A, everyone should be allowed to play test cricket. Uganda should be allowed to play a test match against Nepal tomorrow, right? And the reason that we we, we haven't allowed that, we, we let it be run as a gentleman's club. And because of that, we have this stupid, stupid system that we now are left with. Um, you know, you don't, you don't get to go to the Olympics every year uh, because you had a good sprinter in 1912, right? You have to continually keep having people qualify or meet certain markers to be able to go to the Olympics. Um, and you certainly don't get to the final of the Olympics just because you were good 100 years ago. So many things you have to qualify for. And Test Cricket, we set up a gentleman's club where you don't have to qualify for anything. This is what we're living with. It's a stupid system that no one would create now. And when the teams were offered a better system, they all shit themselves because that may, might make them, make them less relevant. And instead of making the competition better, they chose themselves. Welcome to cricket, Jimmy. And how about the scrapping of the Super League overnight? I mean, Netherlands have played just one series till now. And I think... <laughs> I, I, look, I kind of think that at a certain point, something had to cancel. The fact that it was the Super League is ridiculous, as you say. Um, the fact that the, the women's qualifiers, but at a certain point, I don't think they could keep yeah, the playing the level of cricket were, that they were. Well. So that's a bit yeah. I mean, they're both mistakes, obviously, but honestly, I wish more cricket was being cancelled than less. Trying to fit all this cricket in uh, to coronavirus with everything that's going on is just batshit crazy. <laughs> I mean, that's just a word yeah, to be honest, from the beginning. Having 10 teams and this Super League, that's ridiculous. I mean, you're not allowing necessaries to play in the World Cup, and you're calling it a World Cup. Yeah, the whole thing is ridiculous. The way that cricket is run is ridiculous, which is a fairly normal part of cricket. Uh, thanks for your question, though, mate. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Herb Day? Hey, Jared, can you hear me? I can. What's your question? Hey, um, so first of all, I would like to request you to make a video sometime of Joe Byrne. I would like to request that no one makes requests. What, do I look like a wedding DJ? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but I just think he's a fascinating player and... Like every time he counts for X, he scores a big hundred, but then he gets left out for some reason. Because he's not that good. I mean, he's not. He's a flawed player who has the ability at home occasionally to make some very good runs for Australia. But he's, you know, he's a flawed player. His record probably flatters him a little bit. Um, so, so with the request, when people ask it, I know this sounds weird, but I'm not actually, the videos, it's not like, they basically come to me. I know that sounds like an odd way, but... When you say make a video on Joe Burns, I wasn't yesterday. I wasn't making a video on Manus Lavashane, right? Like yesterday, I was making a video on the, or the today. Actually, I made that video. Um, I wasn't making a video on Manus Lavashane. It's really like a trend that I noticed with him that was a bit weird. That's what the video is about. So it's very rare for me to go into a series and go, "I'm going to make a video about Jasper Bumrah." It's just like suddenly Jasper Bumrah does something specific, or I noticed that you know I haven't done anything on, on Ashwin and left-handers, and then I want to dive deep into that, or you know whatever it is. So the videos sort of come from they don't come from a player's name, I suppose is the best way to do it. They come from like a quirk or an, um, some or or a story point or an arc or something like that, uh, rather than uh, the player themselves. And that's why when people make requests, I don't really work because that's not how my brain works. Um, you know, I don't listen to my own requests. <laughs> that makes sense no worries did you have any other questions or was that it yeah my question was I it's about umpiring and so the in recent India New Zealand series the umpiring came under a lot of slack and the one question I had was looking at it whenever a decision review system or a DRS a challenge is called the I see that the control completely switches over to the third umpire as opposed to like in football where 
in VAR, there is a monitor that the actual on-field referee looks at and then takes a decision. So do you think something like that could help improve yeah. umpiring decisions in cricket? I think that would make it worse. Firstly, <laughs> the umpires would have to run 80 metres to get off the ground to that unit. So you would slow could the game down. Device, right? No, they couldn't. Do you really... Have you seen some of the footage? Let's. Um, what about that? Was it the stumping? Was it Ross Taylor in that test match? Do you really want someone looking at a mobile phone to decide on whether that was out or not? Like the footage isn't good enough to begin with because the cameras are so far away. Um, putting it on a mobile phone is no good. No, what I want is professional third umpires. Stop making people who don't understand technology try and do third umpires a, th- a, th- you know, a third of the time. Uh, it is a specialist position. You need to know, you need to understand how the TV companies work. Uh, you should be in a place with high, high end, um, computing power. Um, there should be a lot more, um, uh, support around you. It should be completely independent. And by independent, I mean the people who are running it as well. There's no point having independent umpires. And then we have, you know, local, um, techs in, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it should be a completely independent thing and it should be run out of UAE. Uh, and we should have specialist third umpires who actually know what they're doing. Perfect example was was a, a Verinda um, Sharma in the last test didn't even know what the processes were because he doesn't do it enough. So uh, no, that's what it should be. That's how I would fix it. Um, uh, which is what um, basketball does. Which is what baseball does. I'm trying to think if there's another sport that does that as well. Um, but yeah, you basically have a, a bunker somewhere and those people have all the equipment that they need to be able to do this. Um, and you, and third umpires are, is a specialist position. Uh, for former umpires, like you still want probably professional umpires to do it, but I think there'd be a lot of professional umpires around the world that'd be like, wait, I can live in Dubai rather than having to travel. I mean, Gun, uh, Gunnar Gould told me once that I think he said 270 days of the year he's away from home. That's what, another reason we struggle to keep umpires. All right, they, they spend so long traveling, so m- many of their hours. So, no, that's what I would do. But, but great question. Thanks for that. Thank you. William, you there? Hi, Jared. How are you doing? No, yeah, not too bad. So, like you can tell, I'm English and I'm already slightly tilting at the shocking efforts from England so far, which is already making me start to feel the ashes is only going in that typical direction of bad. The thing that's getting me is that I think England have just been poor and Australia have been good so far, but I'm getting a lot of sympathy from my Australian friends saying things like England have been really unlucky and, you know, wood bowled really well and, you know, X, Y, Z, small things going wrong. I'm just not used to it, basically. So, like, you're Australian. Like, are we just shit? Or, like, is some kind of middle ground where Australia have bowled well, batted well so far, and we didn't bat well and have bowled okay and fielded appallingly and, and looked really cooked. Yeah, I think if you look at the data of how much the players were in control. So David Warner's innings, after 100 balls, I looked it up, and he was in control about 78% of the time. That's comically low for someone who's faced 100 balls. Generally, if you're only in control 78% of the time, you're probably out more often yeah. Um, and when you looked at, I can't remember what it was. I think someone looked it up the first 30 or 40 overs, right? Uh, when you looked at first 30 or 40 overs, there wasn't that much difference between the amounts of plays and misses and times that uh, England batters were out of control than there was compared to the Australian batters were out of control. That suggests that luck plays a part. Also, there is a probably, I think Australia probably had less plays and misses perhaps because they were a little bit more. Uh, because maybe the Australians left bat- better when they were batting 
um, as well. Um, I think that might have, have played a part. Or England at times were maybe a little bit too short or a bit too wide. So a lot of the plays and misses weren't as dangerous perhaps as the other ones. But other than Chris Wokes' early spell, I thought that all the seamers bowled really, really well. Um, until they all started to get injured or sore. Um, and then obviously it did fall apart a little bit. But it, put, put it this way, there was a very good chance that even if you even if you give Warner his runs, there was a very good chance that Australia was going to get bowled out for about 250 there before England sort of lost control um, and Travis Head obviously played his innings. There's uh, selection issues there too. That probably doesn't happen. Uh, the, the score, as it stands, probably doesn't happen if Broad plays ahead of Leach. Um, you know, that is... I think that was always an error. I would never have picked Jack Leach to play Leach in, in Australia. Leach now impeccable, do you think, going forwards? Well, you can't... I mean, he doesn't bowl very well against left-handers, and there's a lot of left-handers in this team. I don't know what they expect him to be able to do. Like, he, you know, he's never bowled well against left-handers. Um, he's not a traditional spinner that would be good in Australia. So bowlers who are good in Australia usually either can bowl with overspin naturally or can do it when they need to, someone like Ashwin. Um, uh, Jack Leach doesn't bowl overspin. He's not tall. He's not that kind of bowler. Um, it's not his skill set. And also, he's usually only good when the ball is ragging sideways. I mean, you're setting him up to fail massively by suddenly dropping him into an Ashes test when he hasn't been playing on flat pitches for England. Right, like I mean, they've been using him almost exclusively. Yeah, well, playing at all, exactly. So, uh, I don't really understand uh, why they did what they did. Uh, but yeah, I can. I think anyone watching that that performance yesterday, when you when you look at Ollie Robinson and Stokes, even you know, I, I think did Wokes leave the field at one stage? Wood fell over a bunch of times, you know, and Warner's luck. It would be hard to say that like Australia blitzed, um, but that that narrative only lasts for one innings, right? So if England come out and get bowled out for 150 again, no one's going to be saying England's unlucky in this test match. Whereas if England... That's quite inevitable because we did look well, a bit shell-shocked. It is. Look, I still think there's a little bit... If, when the ball's new, the first 40 overs, I still think it's quite difficult to bat on. I think Australia proved that. I think maybe what? Manus Labuschagne's probably the only top-order player who's looked... Well, the only player who faced the newish ball who looked comfortable in this entire test so far. Um so, so I think that's having read your piece today. That's just because he's unbelievably good, isn't it? It could just be that he's better than everyone else. I, I, I find that hard, hard to disagree with. Um, but thanks so much for your question, William. Oh, thanks a lot. He can't. Yeah, hi, Jared. Can you hear me? Just project. The question might be half big, but uh, please help me along if something was wrong. So it's about the interplay between uh, technique and psychology in, in test batting. Mm-hmm. So bowlers right now have better pitches, uh, particularly fast, faster bowlers. They have increased accuracy and they set up batters really well. And batters kind of, uh, at least at the top level, judge length pretty well and select shots pretty well as well. Uh, and, you know, uh, the situations are, uh, often dictate how they go about it. And uh, there's this uh, talk about how, uh, going after runs and playing for survival. Mm-hmm. Even all this, like, how do you think the if, if within this pace bowling pandemic, uh, as you say, batters are going to play the good, good length balls well, or you know how they're going to approach the uh, approach that uh, corridor of uncertainty, and uh, would they at any point score be able to score runs there? Well, that's the interesting thing is that the corridor of uncertainty doesn't really work anymore because what happened was ball, batters were just leaving everything. And so now bowlers bowl warrior on the wicket and the corridor is not really there. They're really trying to get as close to as off stump as possible now, um, or at the very least make the batters feel like every ball is going to come back and hit off stump. 
So that's already changed. And so batters, we don't know if this happened first or second, but batters moved to batting on off stump because of that. So we've already seen that change that you're talking about. And so what batters are trying to do is they're saying, well, if you're going to bowl at off stump and middle stump more often or around very close to off stump and middle stump more often, I'm going to pretend that that's on my pads and I'm going to whip that ball away. So that's what is already happening. Um, and then you're seeing the opposite of that is um, Pajara, Sibley, Brathwaite type players who are just like, okay, well, you're going to bowl a lot of good balls. My only way of beating you then uh, is going to be to nullify that that good ball for as long as possible. So we'll see a few players like that. We'll see a few other players who will take the ball on, which is sort of, um, uh, you know, almost like a uh, risk and reward type situation. Uh, and then there'll be other players who might, f- this new style might actually help a bit more naturally. They probably prefer the ball to be closer to their stumps rather than outside off stump. Uh, and so they'll they'll be handling it. But yeah, that's essentially what has already happened. Like, what do you think about driving on the up, particularly when there's sideways movement? Well, I mean, driving on the up's always a risk. Um, it's more of a risk with the wobble ball. If you're driving on the up for an outswinger, you at least have the idea that, okay, well, this ball is starting to go and I'm driving it on the up. If you're driving on the up from a wobble ball, you've already committed to your shot before you know which way the ball's going. Good luck. Yeah, and uh, the last thing, uh, about something about Smith's dismissal today. Like, uh, it might happen quite often where uh, bowlers use the, use the crease you know, Smith, I, I don't think he I, he would have played that if the same ball was bowled from a little closer to the stumps. Yeah. Like even last year, I think Pujara got one from Hazelwood where he kind of nicked something that he wouldn't usually play at. So how do you think bowlers are uh, play, uh, playing with that? And do you think batters are affected by it unnecessarily? Not unnecessarily. It does change the angle. So if you're set up for a delivery and they go wider, it does help. I, I think that generally in the old days, it was always like, one or two bowlers that did it and you know usually the smarter bowlers would play with the crease a little bit more i think what you're finding maybe in the last two to three years maybe even three to four years that so many bowlers are, are using it as a tactic now so if you look at the way that uh, tin Zaldi set up the indian batters he basically would bowl three balls from close to the stumps and then one ball from wide over and over again it was a really simple pattern uh you know we were talking about it on talk sport and he did it again and again and again and so often it worked um, it does change your angle and it should change your angle as a batter. And generally two things happen. One, that it literally, you're playing a different kind of bowler when they go wide on the crease. And the other thing is that it makes you play at balls that you, you wouldn't normally play at. Um, and we've certainly, like, you know, Josh Callis used to do it. We've seen a lot of players try it. Um, you know, I, I was, I, as a leg spinner, it was something that I did a lot, um, you know, just to change the angle. You know, so three balls landing on off stump, from closer to stumps and then one ball landing on off stump from wide. So I could basically bowl four straight leg spinners um, and but, but but set batters up in a completely different way. So, yeah, I think it works and it's always worked. I think the difference now is probably it's people are training to do it rather than just doing it in the game on a whim. Um, and I think we'll only see more of it. I think it's a brilliant tactic. Uh, thanks for your questions. Yeshuv, you there? Yeah, hi, Zared. Hi, what's your question? Hi, so uh, just want to know your view on this, uh, you know, Virat being stripped off the RDA captaincy today, uh, sorry, yesterday, because I, I just feel it's being blown out of proportions a little bit, because I, I recently heard Virat saying in a press conference that, you know, uh, before when there was Ravi Shastri and now there is Rahul Dravid, the, the common uh, idea behind everyone is to take in cricket forward, that's the motive for everyone so if mm-hmm. that's his thought process then i'm sure that you know 
being taken away from the ODI captaincy wouldn't have really made a lot of difference for him. I don't think that's the issue. I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue here is why was he taken away from the ODI captaincy? Is it for cricketing reasons or for other reasons? And then did they did they show respect to their captain in the way that they release this? And the answer on both of those is there's no real reason for him to be stripped of the ODI captaincy based on their record. They're a phenomenal one-day team. Uh, and um, the way that they treated him was unprofessional. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to go into the whole, oh, he's Virat Kohli, you should respect him. I don't care about that because that's for other people. But it's unprofessional what they just did. But do you think it makes sense to have a different ODI captain and a different T20 captain? The last time I can think is Stuart Broad and Alistair Cook in 2012. After that, it hasn't happened. Oh, I, I think it's fine to have it. I, I don't have any problem with that. I mean, you, you could you could easily have multiple captains there. I don't, don't see any reason why. I mean, they're two different formats. So, yeah, no, I've got no problem with that at all. And, and another thing was here, like, you know, Virat has had, uh, like, this captaincy for so long. He had a ODI World Cup and a T20 World Cup and didn't really uh, get the results. But now with uh, another uh, T20 and ODI World Cup on the loom, with Rohit already being T20 captain, I, I thought it made sense to give him the ODI World Cup as well. Even if you're right, it doesn't matter because that's not what's happened here. Quite clearly, there's political nonsense going on and the way that they, they released it is, is obvious that there is an, a bigger issue here. Uh, when you say they didn't do anything, they made the final of the Champions League, they made the semi-final of the World Cup, right? A lot of this is just... If they had a bit of luck in either of either of those tournaments, they you know may, you know they probably should have made the final of the World Cup. They probably should have made both of those finals. They had a chance of winning the World Cup, um, champions um, champions trophy. They were in the final. Things go differently in that game. They win the game, right? I mean, I, I, sometimes I, I feel like people don't actually understand what's going on here. This is a phenomenally talented one day team, and he's certainly a big part of it, being a successful winning team. Now. If they decided what you said, oh, he's not going to be around in to you know with the next World Cup, or we want to change for the next Champions Trophy, those are all valid things to do. But the way they've handled it is still unprofessional, and I don't believe they were sitting around going, I, I don't think they did due diligence on this. And so, if that's the case, then um, they deserve to be mocked in in the press and and online and all the different things that happen. I think that's very very fair. Uh, thanks for your question. Ashish is here. The spirit of Ashish. It's like Faf Duplessis on a on a on a green seamer in South Africa, just taking the balls to the chest. Oh, he's asked the question another way. Beautiful. As my audio is not working, yes, we have we have gathered that. With certain unconfirmed rumors that after the 2022 mega auction, there may not be any more auctions. Can we reimagine the IPL in a system similar to NBA, NHL, American sports? where there's a free agency, a draft, et cetera, and when a new team comes in, they get players in the expansion draft like how the Seattle Kraken did in the NHL. Great name, the Seattle Kraken too, isn't it? Yes. I, I, mean, I don't know about the mega auction. I've had rumors on both sides. I haven't really talked to anyone um, specifically about it. But I think the I personally think the auction is done. Here's what I, I believe. There was that whole thing about KRL this year, and it's like, oh, maybe talk to another team and all this sort of stuff. KRL... It's one of the best players who has ever played in the IPL. He's a seasoned veteran. He has captained his team. He has played for India, right? Carroll gets to pick which team he wants to go to now. He shouldn't be in a situation where that's not the case. What auctions or drafts should be for is for players who don't have that experience or players who I've got no problem with having an auction or a draft where you have players who already have experience, but maybe they have less than 30 
IPL games, right? Those guys, probably less so picking where that they play. But once you have more than 30 games or you have more than 20 games in an Indian cap or you're an international player with 20 games and you've represented your national team 10 times, you should be able to be picked as a free agent. Um, I think that's what a mature league does. It respects their players. At the moment, the auction is just. I mean, you can basically... Unless you could force a trade, so Shikadawan might be one of the few players who kind of managed to do that. Um, unless you can force a trade, and realistically, these teams don't really know how to trade yet because there aren't that many of them. Also, trading in the IPL or any T20 league is fraught with danger because like, there's, there's eight teams and you're going to have to go up against the person you traded against. It's not like being in the Western Conference or the Atlantic Division and you know trading someone to the opposition uh, in a different division to you. Um, so there are all those things that are definitely... Uh, part of it but yes it should be a more grown-up league and i certainly believe that uh we should be getting to the point of having proper free agency um expanding the trades and as you say when you have a new team come in they should have the you know the earlier draft picks uh, also like at the moment look at the end of sunrise's year there was nothing there they weren't even tanking it's just like teams are just sort of hanging at the bottom at the moment would i prefer a team like when they know they're not going to make the finals, trying out all their young players and then um, knowing that they're going to get a good draft pick the next year. Like there's there's something to build towards. And the other thing is, look at Delhi. Delhi did all this stuff to build themselves up as a, re- a team with an incredible young core and then couldn't keep it. That's what you want teams to do. You want teams to take chances on young Indian players and develop them and young overseas players and develop them. Realistically, you know, you want someone to go, uh, you know, some, you want someone to pick Rodman Powell and just be like, okay, we might not be able to use him for the first year and a half, but let's just get him in, let him play spin for a while. And eventually, if we can get him to play spin and strike at 130 against spin, um, and maybe we can t- teach him an extra couple of slower balls, then his batting at the death will be so useful to us that, that we'll be able to use him for the next seven or eight years. That's what we want. That's a proper sporting league. And that's not really, at the moment, we have this sort of endless churn. So yeah, I think that that's certainly something that we need to look at going forward. Thank you very much to everyone for coming in. Thanks to manscaped.com. Remember, if you use the code REDINCA, all one word, you get a 20% discount, free worldwide shipping. And also, you know, clean balls or shaved balls. Smooth balls, maybe is the best way of putting that. Uh, and this is a sport that, where we look after balls. Well, hopefully anyway. Big shout out to also Bodyline T-shirts and everyone who supports us on Patreon. Also, if Patreon doesn't work for you, there's also the buy me a coffee um, option as well. But thanks to everyone for coming on. Obviously, now in the next little while, because of the ashes, uh, my timings will all be out. So these will be at all sporadic times. But huge shout out to everyone who turned up on the Spotify green room today. And thanks for your questions. And I'll talk to you again next time. <laughs>